the joy to be able to sing about the cross. The cross is an object of something. It's the, uh, the cross points us somewhere. It points us to Jesus. And it points us to all the work that he has accomplished for us on the cross. As we celebrate the uh, Lord's Supper this morning, uh, we have bread that gets passed. The bread represents the body of Jesus. Uh, we pass a cup, and the cup represents the blood of Jesus, this covenant that was made with us through Jesus. And as we celebrate these, the cup and the bread, um, they're reminders. They remind us of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, we do this once a month to stir us up by way of reminder. Um, and so I pray as we do this, this isn't just something that we'd see as a routine or something we just go through, but indeed a time for us to think hard about, about what is what is the gospel all about? What difference is the gospel making in my life? That Jesus has died and risen, given himself for us so that we could be new. And God then assembles us together as the body of Christ. Uh, we celebrate this as believers this morning. If you're a believer, you're, we certainly invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you're not a believer yet, uh, our prayer would be that, you would, that God would bring you to that point soon. But, uh, but this would be something that's for a remembering what God's done for us. And if you're not saved yet, then I'd just let the bread and the cup pass. Um, for those who are believers and uh, those who are recognizing that there are some things that you need to deal with in your life, it would be our desire that you would, uh, you would confess those things, that you would be, as we would, things would be passed, that you would deal with those and you'd pray and seek forgiveness and seek restoration, and we know that God brings that. Uh, but if you were recognizing that that's going to take some work with some others and things at a time that um, you're just not there yet this morning, I'd encourage you to um, let the uh, bread and the cup pass as well. Before we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, um, we're going to read our church covenant together. Um, our church covenant is uh, a document that we was put together uh, some time ago, and uh, it, it communicates that we are a church family, and it communicates the things that we are committing to with one another as the body of Christ. It is very easy for us in our American culture just to be very individualistic, that I'm doing what I do, it's me and Jesus, and me and Jesus, and everybody else can do what they want, but I'm going to make sure I'm doing the right thing. But God calls us to live together in a community, and those communities are called the local church, and we're called to partner with one another to carry out all these one another's that we read in the scripture, and we're to do those together. And so we're going to read this church covenant together this morning, and, um, and we're going to do, I'm going to do something that's going to make you a little bit uncomfortable. Okay, and uh, what I'm going to do to make you a little uncomfortable is we're going to stand together. That won't make you too uncomfortable. But what I want us to do, too, is to hold hands as we read this. Okay, and the purpose of holding hands as we do this is to communicate that uh, we are a church family. All right, and uh, so I know that for some of you this is a little bit of a stretch. For some of you it's a really big stretch. But God's called us to be a church family. So let's read this church covenant together and just going to move the slides along. Let's read together. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as the body of Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, 
to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to attend its services regularly, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to give faithfully of my time and talent, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry and the expenses of the church, the help of those in need, and the spread of the gospel. We engage to maintain family and private devotions, to train our children according to the Word of God, to seek the salvation of relatives, friends, neighbors, and acquaintances, to walk carefully and cautiously in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our conduct, to be wise and loving in the exercise of our Christian liberty, to respond to conflict with grace and truth, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayers, to aid in the, in the sickness and in distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling, courtesy, and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and to seek it without delay. We moreover engage that if we leave Eastside Baptist Church, we will as soon as possible unite with a church of like faith and practice where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. It would be a prayer, my prayer, that God would make this a growing reality. I think we do a lot of these things really, really well, and I'm praying that God would continue to grow us in our expression of being a church family and our covenant together. You may be seated. Well, deacons, why don't you guys come on, or leaders, come on here. We'll pass the bread. The book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul reflected on that, and he said, For this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the broken body of Jesus Christ. Lord, that he took on flesh, limiting himself to all that it means to be man, to live in dependence upon you, and then giving his life. Lord, dying on the cross so that we could have life. Lord, we thank you for this gift. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, not simply to know these facts of the gospel, not only to be confessing them with our lips, but that we would be living out the reality of all that you are and that we'd be living in a manner that would communicate that we truly do love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. passage we read earlier continues it says in the same way he that jesus also took the cup after supper saying this cup this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me
Father, we rejoice. Lord, we have abundant reasons to give you praise and thanks. Lord, the least of which is certainly not the fact that you've established a new covenant with us, a new covenant that includes the forgiveness of sins and the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And Lord, I pray that you'll continue to stir us as a church. Lord, that you would help us to be living out the fruit of what it looks like to be followers of you. But Lord, we'd also be growing in the understanding that we are a family, that we are a church body covenanted together to be growing not only up in our relationship with you, but growing together in our love for one another. God, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at this time, the kids can be dismissed to Children's Church, and the rest of us, if you open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark chapter 3, as this is Thanksgiving week, later this week, most everyone here is likely going to be spending time um, eating a little extra food, uh, very likely spending time with some additional family members, and those family gatherings uh, can often be kind of challenging. Um, Well, I'll just ask a question. How many of you have a crazy or odd or unusual family member? All right, yeah, maybe, and by the way, if you didn't raise your hand, you might be them, okay, all right, you might be the one, because every family seems to have one, the uh, individual who is just a little bit different, and um, as we think about these kind of uh, individuals, oftentimes we're we're a little embarrassed by them, Uh, we kind of gear up because we know what they're going to be like. Uh, We can't deny them because they're family, you know, they're blood, so we don't necessarily uh, deny them. If they're guests with us that we want to kind of warn them ahead of time, hey, by the way, you might run into my uncle, and uh, heads up about the uncle. Or if you're there, um, that may because of the things that they do, he or she does, that that you want to kind of try to manage what they say, or they say something, you're kind of explaining it away that, well, he didn't really mean that, and you're trying to help manage the whole situation. And and in some ways, you want to to protect um, yourself and others from this individual, but sometimes you want to protect them from themselves, uh, just because of the things that they do. Well, as we think about having crazy family members, um, we're going to read in our passage this morning um, about a family member that was considered crazy. And and we read it here in the first part of Luke chapter 3 in verse 20, 20, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. It says this, Then he, that's Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again. So that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for their saying, he is out of his mind. As we read this introductory passage, we're going to pick up then the way this passage is structured. We're going to read all the way through the end of chapter 3. But here it's talking about Jesus' family. And we look down in verse 31, and it says, And his mother and his brothers came... And standing outside, they sent for him and called him. We see this passage about Jesus' family. It's introduced about Jesus' family. Then we have an interruption, and Jesus, they're going to talk about a situation, and they're going to come back to the family. So that shows us, I believe this is our textual unit this morning. 
But the family, when we see in verse 20, the crowds all gathering so much that they can't even, they don't have time to eat. And his family shows up and his family say, what about him? They say that he is out of his mind. As we see Jesus' family here, Jesus' family are saying that he's crazy. They're saying that he is crazy. And as we seek to understand this idea that, that, that he is crazy, that we're not really sure, did they really think he was crazy? Or were they saying that he's tra- crazy to kind of protect them and try to manage the situation a little bit? And you can probably argue for all sides of it. Because one thing that we do know, it seems that they're concerned about him. They're concerned about Jesus. The crowds, every place he goes, crowds are crushing in on him. Back in earlier in chapter 3, there's so many people crowding around Jesus that he, he's afraid that he's going to get crushed, and he tells his disciples, have a boat ready just in case the crowds get so overwhelming that he could be crushed. Everywhere he goes, crowds gather. We see um, in this passage as well that there's so many people have come, they don't even have time to eat. And so it could be that the family, is they're just concerned about him. And they, how they get him out of the situation, let's say he's crazy, let's take him home, and so the crowds will diminish if we say he's crazy, and that could be the case. It could be also the case that they're seeking to protect Jesus. Look back in chapter 3, verse 6. It says, after Jesus, after he heals a man on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees were very unhappy with this. And chapter 3, verse 6 says that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, those are some of the government officials, against him as to how they might destroy him. That, that his family likely could be understanding that the religious leaders, the crowds are building up and the resistance against him is growing and they may have gotten word that he could be in significant trouble. And so they'd express their concern for him by going and saying, listen, he's just crazy. You know, he doesn't mean all this kind of stuff. Or we could also recognize that their concern could be for their own reputation. Because it's Jesus. It's this, I'm the crazy. Oh, you're the ones with the crazy brother, right? Okay, you're the one with the crazy son. So we're not really sure, we're not told why they are coming and saying this, but, but it certainly seems that they're coming out of concern. It may be out of concern of Jesus, maybe concern for themselves, but they're concerned. And, and what is the result of this? It says that he heard it, they went out to seize him. And this word, seize him, it's also used in other places, like to arrest somebody. And it, the idea that it's communicating is this, that they want to take charge of Jesus. That Jesus is out there doing some things that they're, they're wrestling with, and they're wanting to come, and they want to take him home and kind of put him away. Take him home and get him out of this situation. And, and we, there's a level we can kind of understand that, and so they're saying he's crazy. But I hear this idea that they want to take charge of him. I can't help but to think how even in our day, there are people who want to take charge of Jesus. They want to take charge of Jesus. They want to, they, they, they want to do this by trying to tone down what Jesus says. They, they, they want to explain away some of the truths that we would read about in the Bible. They, they, they want to make Jesus, they want to make him less offensive. They want to make Jesus more acceptable that they're, they're, they're trying to change things around because they, they, they're, they don't have malicious intent often in this. 
I mean, oftentimes they want good things. They want people to embrace Jesus. They see people sometimes walking away from Jesus because of hard teaching, and, and they don't want that, and so they kind of water down some of Jesus' teaching. As we see this, that what happens is, though, they end up flattening out Jesus' message. And Jesus' message is no longer the fullness of all that he is wanting to teach us. But in many ways in our culture, how we see this is people want to flatten out Jesus' teaching on the fact that he is holy, that there's one way to heaven and it's only through him that you must repent. He communicates that there is wrath coming for those who die in their sin. Jesus is communicating all of that in the New Testament and we see it clearly. But because people don't like those messages, they don't like that Jesus says that marriage is, that God created men and women to be married. They don't like those ideas, that they want to just flatten out Jesus' message to be all about love. Love, love, love. And Jesus' message is certainly about love, but it's about more than love. And we have even popular people who call themselves evangelical teachers in our culture today who are saying that, that Jesus isn't everything that he says he is. That, that Jesus isn't everything that he says he is and that you need to detach yourself from the Old Testament. We need to unhitch from that and saying things that we need to change this message a little bit and, and, and just kind of reshape it. But what we see in this is that Jesus isn't Plato. I mean, we don't have the authority or the right to massage and to reshape Jesus and to present him to a culture that is different than what the Bible teaches. That we don't have the authority to kind of pare away these teachings, these pieces, and only keep this. That that's not our right. And as Jesus' family comes, that they, they want to say he's crazy because they want to maybe protect him, they're concerned about him, and sometimes people with good intent can try to seek that think they're helping. But if we take Jesus and reshape him and we make him look different than the Bible does, that's not a Jesus who can save. That's not a Jesus who can make a difference in somebody's life. That's not a Jesus who can reorient and bring forgiveness. And so as we see this, Jesus' family members thinking he's crazy, I'm burdened that I think there are, there are oftentimes people and sometimes we may be in a situation that we know a family member is, is kind of hostile to the things of Christianity. They get fired up and they get angry. And it can be real easy for us to not want to talk about the things of Jesus that are true and just just talk about the things that we all agree with. But Jesus doesn't give us that authority. And, and as we're going to see later in this passage, that Jesus' family, Jesus' family, while they're seeking to take charge of him, Jesus is going to redefine who really are his family members. And so as we see this first passage and this idea about these family ties that, that, that we see within the gospel, we see that Jesus' family members think he's crazy. Well, let's continue on in this passage to see what else, what others would say about Jesus. In verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. 
and this idea that scribes, they're religious, they're, they are the religious leaders, they are the religious authorities of the day, that there's certainly some stir going on in Jerusalem where the kind of the headquarters of the Jewish religion is. Because of that, they're sending these scribes to kind of check things out to see what's going on. They get there, they see Jesus uh, casting out demons, and they're saying that he is possessed by Beelzebub, okay, by Satan. It's another name for the devil. He is empowered by the devil. These works that he is doing, they're not the works of God. These works that he's doing are the works of Satan. And Jesus, in verse 23, he calls to them. And he calls to them and he said in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against its house, that will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So, scribes are saying they're seeing Jesus do these miracles. They're saying these are of the devil. Jesus says that's not the case at all. And how does he say that? Well, we see the scribes in this. The enemies of, of Jesus are saying that he's empowered by Satan. They say that his, and as while they're saying that his power comes from Satan, one of the things they're unable to deny is his power. Do you notice what they don't say is, he's not really doing miracles. He really hasn't cast out demons. And as we see Jesus' opponents over and over, they never deny his miracles. They say that he's wrong for doing them on the Sabbath. He says he's wrong for doing them um, in places where he's not supposed to. They say he's wrong for doing them in this. And they say in here, they're saying he's doing it by the power of the devil. And what we recognize is his power and authority are undeniable. Which is an interesting statement because as we think the early church... Uh, throughout, throughout history, there have been all kinds of wrong ideas of who Jesus is. Okay, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is fully God, fully man, in one person, that we can't divide his being, we can't separate all that out, that he is one being. There, through church history, there are people who deny that Jesus is God, deny, people, de- deny that, people that Jesus is man, that, that's confused. In the early church, people didn't, their early heresies were not that Jesus They didn't say Jesus wasn't God. They said he wasn't man. Today, people say, well, I don't really believe Jesus is God. In the early church, that's not what people wrestled with. They wrestled with, was he truly man? The reason why they wrestled with his truly man is because they couldn't deny his miracles. There were so many people that had seen all this. These crowds that we are talking about are thousands and thousands of people who are witnessing miracles and experiencing all of this. And there was undeni- they could not deny that this stuff happened. And so they said that, that, okay, he may be truly God, but there's no way he's a man because there's no way a man could do all those things. That was, early, that, that was a problem in the early church. And we see over time how that's just shifted. And today it's, well, I don't really believe Jesus is God. Okay, but scriptures and history would teach us that there's lots of reasons for us to believe he's fully God and fully man. So Jesus' power and authority are undeniable. And so what do his opponents do? They say he's possessed by Satan. And in Jesus, though, he challenges them. And he says to them, okay, you're saying that I'm possessed by Satan. But what am I doing? 
I'm casting out demons. Right? He says, that, doesn't, that logic doesn't line up because if I'm on Satan's side, I'm not going to be tearing down his house. I'm not going to be causing all kinds of problems for him. I mean, the logic is like this. Let's think of a football illustration. We have uh, uh, the Indianapolis Colts, and we have, who are the arch enemies? Brian. Patriots. Okay. We're glad you're here, Brian. Okay, the Patriots. It'd be like this. Let's suppose the Patriots are playing the Colts and, and there's this guy sitting at a restaurant. He's watching the game. And the Colts have this lineman who he is just cutting through the New England's line like it's butter. And he's got like six sacks on Tom Brady. I mean, they're just, this guy is just pummeling him. And this guy's a proud New England fan and he knows his team's good. But he is like, listen, the only reason why that's happening is because somebody in the Patriots organization is paying that guy today. Because there's no way the Colts are that good. I mean, somebody must be paying him from the Patriots. You'd be sitting there thinking, that's a dumb strategy. Because if that strategy happens, your team's getting defeated. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that, that, okay, you're saying I'm empowered by Satan, but I keep, sacking the, I keep sacking the quarterback. I'm casting out demons. I'm having all kinds of success in, in, it says in our text, he says, plundering his house. I'm plundering the house of Satan. If I'm of Satan, this is a dumb idea. But he's saying, it's not who I am. And so we see in this, Jesus is challenging his opponent's logic. They don't get it. They, they, they're, they're, they're trying to come up with some reason why this must be the case. But it's interesting because Jesus then makes another statement in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house, and the strong man's house in this would be Satan and his kingdom. No one can enter a strong man's house to plunder his goods to do the things Jesus is doing unless he first binds the strong man. And what we're seeing here is Jesus is demonstrating, says, I've got that authority. I've got the authority to plunder the household of Satan. He may be the strong man in his kingdom, but Jesus is communicating, he is God and he has all authority. He has all authority to plunder the house of Satan. And in doing that, he, he makes this statement that, that, that he's not empowered by Satan, that he is God. Well, Jesus then continues. He says in verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and, who, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they are saying he has an unclean spirit. In this passage, what we're seeing in this is Jesus is warning these guys about the seriousness of their sin. Because he talks about here, he says, um, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Whoa, that's serious. And, and this, is a, this is a serious, serious sin. Now, I want to pause here because it's really easy for us to, to read this passage and the, our main focus is on, whoa, is there an unpardonable sin what is it? And we start asking all those questions. But, but, but don't go there yet. Look at the first part of it. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. 
Now, don't miss that. Why? Because he's saying, there's, listen, he's going to talk about one sin that's unpardonable. How many others are pardonable? Every one of them. And this one is a really specific one that has to do with Jesus and the works of Jesus and somebody saying that the works of Jesus are empowered by the devil, not the Holy Spirit. Okay, so as we would look at that, we, there's even question about whether we can even commit that today because we don't see Jesus do miracles in the same way and to be able to say, well, that's not Jesus who the Son of God do it, that's Satan doing it. Because they're saying that Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan. Okay, so we question it now back to the big idea that we'll come back to that in just a minute. But what I want you to see is, listen, Jesus says all sins will be forgiven. And I'm convinced that there are people that are believers who trust Jesus and know Jesus, but are plagued by a sin or something in their past that they just think God could never truly and fully forgive them of that they would look at their past or they would look at some, something they have done and to know, yes, Jesus forgives me, but this uh, just makes me a second-level believer because of that. I think in our culture, as I think about what might be an example of that, I think one of them in our culture would clearly be the sin of abortion. As we think about our culture, we read the number of people statistically who have had an abortion in our country, and it's staggering which means that there are millions of women and, and others who have been impacted by it. And what I want you to see in the midst of that is that can seem like an unforgivable sin. How could God ever forgive me of that? And then we read in a passage like this, all sins will be forgiven. That's how good God's grace is. That God is able to wipe away every sin, no matter how deep, no matter how hard, no matter how horrible, no matter how we may think of it, no matter what decisions were going on behind it, that Jesus, the blood of Jesus, this new covenant, the broken body, the blood that He has shed for us, is able to cleanse us fully and freely. And He is able to welcome us into His family. He is able to forgive us and embrace us. And, and it tells, Scripture tells us, where does that sin go? As far far as the east is from the west, that sin is thrown into a sea that has no bottom and no boundaries, never to be found again. That's beautiful. That should give us hope. That should give us confidence. That's the kind of God that we serve. He is a God who washes away all sins. Now, let's talk about this one sin. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. And again, as I said, this seems to be the, what's going on is these people are watching Jesus do work by the Holy Spirit and they're saying, that's not of God, that's of Satan. And Jesus says, that won't be forgiven. And, and here's why. Because what are they saying? They're talking to the one who can forgive them of all sins and they're saying that you are possessed by the devil. If I think Jesus is possessed by the devil, do I have any interest in him forgiving me? I don't. This demonstrates a hardness of heart. This person is recognizing the mission of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, but is denying it, and not only just denying it, but they're cursing it. One author says that this is a conscious, deliberate rejection of the power and grace of God that comes through Jesus. Conscious, deliberate rejection. 
it denotes a conscience and a, a conscious and wicked rejection of the saving power and grace of God towards men. What, what we, another author says this, they will not be forgiven because they will not seek forgiveness. They have turned decisively from the one who can forgive them and are unwilling to turn back. As we consider an unpardonable sin, we can say that they will not be forgiven because they reject the work of the one who can forgive them. And so we would say that the only one who sets himself against forgiveness is excluded from it. The only way I'm set against being forgiven is if I won't trust the one who can forgive me. So this morning, if you're wrestling with whether you, if I committed that sin, have I committed the unpardonable sin? I would tell you the fact that you, and I would ask the next question, I would say, do you care? And if you said, yeah, I kind of do, I would tell you that, that I do not believe you've probably committed that because your heart is tender. And what I would encourage you to do, if whatever that you think that unpardonable sin was that you've done, I would encourage you to confess your sins, to confess your sins, to find forgiveness and freedom from that. So as we, we look at this passage, and it's easy for us to focus on the unpardonable part of it, but to miss this beautiful statement that all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven, except for this one. So as we recognize this, Jesus is warning them of the seriousness of their sin. Well, Jesus then continues in verse 31. The passage continues. And his mother and his brothers, okay, we come back to them. We, saw, we started out with them. They come and are standing outside, and they sent to him, and they called him. All right, so his family members are coming back, and uh, the crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about those who sat around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus talking about his family, the family of God, who belong there. And what we're seeing in this is that, that, that I believe what Jesus' big idea, he's helping us, to, wanting us to see in his whole book, but even here, is that he is the son of God. He is the son of God because as these fa- people come, they ask Jesus a question, or Jesus asks them a question, who are my mother and brothers? And these guys have probably been around Jesus long enough to think, don't answer, don't answer, don't answer, don't answer. Because who are my mothers and brothers? Because I think they would say, um, those people outside, because that's your mom and your brothers, right? But I think they were probably silent, didn't say anything. They're probably getting some wisdom to this point. But he says, and he said, and he says, who are my mother and brothers? And then it's interesting in verse 34. And looking at those who sat around him. So they're inside the house. These people sitting around him, and he's looking at it. And why are these people sitting around him? The idea in this context, if they're sitting around him, he's in a context where he's teaching them. They're listening. They want to learn what he's all about. These are people who are truly following him. And he looks and he sees these people, and he says, Here are my mothers, my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother interesting that Jesus is saying that his true family members are those who do the will of the Father. Those who do the will of God. 
And, and Jesus says this, and those who do the will of God, it's obedience and submission to the person of God, of Jesus, those are who his family members are, doing the will of God. In John chapter 6, just we're not going to take time to look this up, but John 6, 40, listen to what it says. It tells us what's the will of God. What is it? It says this, John 6, 40, this is the will of my Father. Okay, I want to know that. What's God's will? That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What's the work of God? What's the will of God that causes us to be brothers and sisters of Jesus? The will of God is this, that we would believe the Son and have eternal life. It's the gospel. Believe. And as we believe the gospel, we also realize that God's will is that we would believe, but God's will also, in 1 Thessalonians tells us, is that we be sanctified, that we be changing and growing. And so what we would see in this is that this call, that those whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother, this demand for obedience, doing the will of God, is coupled with the privilege of relationship. Let me say that again. The demand for obedience that we do the will of God is coupled with the privilege of relationship. Why will I do what God calls me to do? Because I love God. Because of what He has done for me. Relationship drives obedience. And we see this in this context. And, and, and He's telling us, telling them that those who are here, who are doing the will of God, you're my brothers, you're my sisters, you're my mothers. And, and it's interesting because we, we'd ask the question, well, why is that? Well, well here's, here's why. Because his true family members are those who share the same father. Those who share the same father, that Jesus, the son, the father, that he have an intimate relationship, the father, son, as we would recognize what does the gospel do? One of the huge, beautiful gospel words is adoption. That when we repent and believe the gospel, we are adopted into God's family with the full rights of sons and daughters. And we become brothers and sisters of Jesus. And we are a family. His family. He's our brother. We share a common father. And as a result of that, that, that we could say this, that we're blood relatives. Those of us who trust Jesus, we're blood relatives. The blood of Jesus. We've been born again into a new family. And now we can be his brothers and his sisters. It's interesting in this text as well, he says that we're his brother, his sister, and his mother. There's a family member missing there, isn't there? Father. That's because there's only one father. And us being rightly related to the father is what brings us into this family. And the only way that we're rightly related to the father, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. Beautiful picture. And so we see this morning that there are people who, who think his family thinks he's crazy. His enemies think he's, a, he's empowered by Satan. As we see this, that he is communicating that he is the Son of God. 
And, and, and for us this morning, the challenge for us is to be examining ourselves, but to think, how am I related to Jesus? How am I in, engaging with him? And there may be some here today who said, I think he's crazy. I would encourage you, continue, just to, 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 to study him, to know him. To learn, to see, is he indeed crazy? I think there are sometimes people, there may be people here today that they kind of want to take charge of Jesus. I want Jesus to not talk about this stuff. I want Jesus to talk more about this. I want to manage Jesus. It's not our place. There may be some who don't think that Jesus is who he says he was, that he was actually, he's not actually good for people at all, that he's bad for people. I encourage you to study the Word of God, to listen to others. To, we'd love to, love to talk with you about it. Let's, let's, I would love to chat. But then others of you today have become the brother and sister of Jesus. That your life has been submitted to the Father. You're trusting Jesus as your Savior. You're doing the will of God. If that's you, we're family. And it's a great joy. And it is just like the family of God, just like the family that you have at Thanksgiving, that you have some crazy brothers and uncles or whatever. You've got that. We've got that in a church family too. Okay, don't know who that is. I'm not going to name names. Okay, but we realize that it can be challenging living together as the body of Christ. But God wants us to grow in that. And we grow in that because we are truly related. Related in the blood of Jesus. And so this morning, I would ask you this morning, how are you relating to Jesus? Do you see him as a beloved brother? Are you trusting him? Are you walking with him? So I'm going to pray in just a moment. And when I pray, I'm going to ask the men to come forward. We're going to receive our helping hand offering. But I want to encourage you as we wrap up this morning as well to be considering how am I responding to Jesus? And, and to think about how am I, just, am I submitting myself to him? Is he, truly my father? Is he truly my brother because of my relationship with him? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you would stir our hearts this morning to see that you are good to us. Lord, that we would know that you love us and you've demonstrated that love by sending us Jesus. Lord, that we have celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning and remain and rejoice electing on the fact that the bread is the body of Christ, the cup is this new covenant in your blood. Lord, we've sang about the cross this morning. It's been a glorious opportunity for us to sing. Lord, as we spend time talking about who you are and as you continue to reveal yourself to us as a son of God, Lord, I pray that our lives would be continually being shaped by your truth, continually shaped by your truth, and that our love for you would grow and our love for one another would be an overflow of our love for you. God, we thank you for your grace. And this morning as we receive a helping hand offering to help those in our church family and our community in need, I pray that you would help us to be generous. And Lord, we thank you for the generosity and the goodness that you've shown to us and the opportunity we have to show to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.